Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. On the evening of May the 14th, 1921, police in various stations across London began to receive reports of strange activity. It started when four men knocked on the door of a house at Stowe Road in Shepherd's Bush, demanding to see a certain Mr. Birthright. When they were informed he wasn't at home, they forced their way inside the house and started a fire in an effort to burn the building down. They then moved on to the McNeil house a few streets away on Bloemfontein Road. When they knocked on the door, it was Mrs. McNeil who answered. On this occasion, they asked to see her son-in-law, Charles Corm. Informed he too was not at home, they again forced their way into the house where they were confronted by the woman's husband, Horace. A tussle broke out, a shot was fired and Horace McNeil fell back as the men fled the scene. The wounded 47-year-old was taken to the West London Hospital, where he died a few days later. Throughout that evening, further reports registered similar incidents. In the London suburbs of West Kensington, Battersea, Catford, Greenwich and Tooting, there were further attacks, with two more people sustaining minor gunshot wounds. Although spread across considerable distances, it didn't take the police long to establish a common motive and link the incidents In all cases, the attackers had been looking for current or former members of the Royal Irish Constabulary. The attacks had been carried out by the IRA. However, the volunteers involved had not travelled from Ireland. These IRA volunteers were members of the Irish community in Britain, some of whom had been born in Ireland. Others, however, were second generation, born to Irish parents in England. In this episode, I interview Sam McGrath, who will be taking us on a fascinating journey back to Britain and England in particular to look at the crucial role played by the Irish Republican movement there during the War of Independence, one that's often written out of history. As we're about to hear, their experiences of the conflict were very different and often much more difficult than that of Republicans back in Ireland. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is the War of Independence, Part 16. 
the IRA campaign in Britain. This episode is based around an interview with Sam McGrath, who, as you will be aware, has been a researcher on the wider series on the War of Independence. Now, Sam has carried out extensive research into the IRA in England and Manchester in particular, so he has great insights into this often overlooked aspect of the conflict. Now, before we start the show, I want to give you a sense of where this episode, though, fits into the series as a whole and where we're going in the coming weeks. So this podcast and the last two episodes have diverged from the chronological pattern of the story. The topics such as this one on the IRA in Britain don't really fit into any one point in the story, so they did require standalone episodes. However, in the next show, the series will return to a chronological structure as the war enters its most bitter phase. We'll begin this in Dublin in later 1920 by looking at the events known as Bloody Sunday. That might yet actually become two episodes. Then in what is now episode 18, but could be episode 19, we're going to head to West Cork and join an IRA unit on the McCroom to Dunmanway Road at a place called Kilmichael for what would become a very famous ambush and pivotal moment in the War of Independence. Now while all that's coming down the line, next week there's no War of Independence episode in the main feed, but on Sunday, that's October the 10th at 4pm Irish time, There is an exclusive Q&A with Dr. Brian Hanley from the History Department of Trinity College Dublin for supporters of the show. The Q&A will be on how the War of Independence is remembered in Ireland today. Now this is fast becoming a fascinating but very controversial topic. The latest controversy saw the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, refuse to attend an event marking the centenary of Northern Ireland just a few weeks ago. Other contentious incidents included a planned commemoration of the Royal Irish Constabulary in 2020 that had to be cancelled. Now these events have revealed just how tricky commemorations can be and asks the question of how history should be remembered and how we mark painful chapters in our past. Now Brian has contributed to debates around this issue so the Q&A will be a unique chance to get his expert opinion on this topic as we approach what is arguably the most contentious period in terms of commemorations the Civil War. As I said, this is exclusively available to supporters of the show at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast or Acast plus. There's links in the show notes below and when you sign up you can get access to dozens of exclusive episodes and ad-free content so it's really worth your while. Finally, don't forget to check out the new books, pins and flags at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. I'm only going to be able to avoid talking about it so long But that certain time of the year where you need to buy presents for people is fast approaching. And the Irish History Podcast shop is a great place to get presents for people who are into history, who for some reason seem to be frequently the people who are hard to buy for. Anyway, check out the shop at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Now to the show. Sound on today's episode was by Jason Looney. I began the interview with Sam by asking him to introduce himself. You've all heard his name throughout the series, but this is the man himself. Yeah, hi everybody. Uh, My name is Sam McGrath. Uh, I've been working with Finn since the start of this podcast series as an an extra help of hands in terms of research. Uh, I've been working as an archivist uh, since graduating in in 2013. uh, And for the last four years, I've been working with the Military Service Pensions Collection, which is part of the Military Archives based in Cattlebrew Barracks in Dublin. Uh, I'm here in a personal capacity and my day-to-day job will be cataloguing and processing uh, service pension applications from men and women who declaimed service between 1916 and 1923. In order to understand the IRA, 
the Republican movement and the War of Independence in Britain, we need to get a sense of the wider Irish community across the region. So Sam began by giving this overview of the Irish community in Britain in the 1920s. In terms of, say, 1921, uh, the total population of Britain was 40 million, roughly 40 million. The Irish-born population was just over half a million. Uh, so quite, quite substantial. Um, and if you take a second generation and third generation Irish, you're talking about 2 million. So again, um, quite a number um, out of the total 40 million in England, Scotland and Wales. In terms of where they're based, it's, it's many, of the, many of the towns and cities that people today would associate with the Irish community. Um, obviously, the capital, London, Liverpool City uh, and some of its kind of satellite towns like St. Helens and Earlstown. Uh, Manchester, another important place for the Irish community and a neighbouring uh, Salford City and Rochdale. Birmingham, uh, and then also uh, Scotland, and particularly Glasgow. The story of the Republican movement in Britain is complex, and it varied between England, Scotland and Wales, and even between cities in each of these countries. So Sam concentrated on the story of the Republican movement in one city, that of Manchester, in the northeast of England. This gives us a much better sense of how the war played out, and what it was like for one specific Irish community. As Sam now explains, the experience of the war in Manchester was shaped by a long history of radical activism among the Irish community in the city that stretched back to the early 19th century. Yeah, so Manchester is a city which I've, I've looked at um, particularly. Um, I, I gave a talk um, just before COVID in, in Pier Street Library in Dublin about the Republican movement in Manchester. And I gave the same, the same talk uh, during COVID, actually, uh, via Zoom to a, um, a Manchester Irish Local History Festival. So Manchester and London were the kind of two main places of interest for me in terms of research. And I'd be able to, to some degree, kind of look at the similarities and differences between the two cities. But talk about Manchester, you know, it has a very uh, long and proud history of, of radical politics and, and political campaigns. And the Irish community have always been involved to various levels within those different um, political groups and campaigns. You know, going back as early as 1819 with the Peterloo massacre in which 18 people um, were killed during a, a, a rally, which was looking for, you know, basic parliamentary representation and, and, and basic kind of political reform. There's many Irish names uh, in the list of those. During the middle part of the 1800s, when you had the Charteris campaign, again, people looking for quite basic social and political reform. There was Irish workers involved in, in, in all levels of that campaign. It's really, it's really 1867, really, with the Manchester Martyrs, where I guess the start of uh, Irish Republican history in Manchester, uh, that's certainly the, the focal point and the beginning. There was a failed uprising in, in, in 1867, a failed Fenian uprising, and two key figures managed to evade arrest afterwards, Thomas J. Kelly and Timothy Deasy. And on the 18th of September, 1867, these two prisoners were being transported um, in Gorton in southeast Manchester. And there's about 40 seniors involved in a rescue campaign. And they attempt to essentially rescue these two seniors from a prison van. So one policeman was killed in that operation. Three Irishmen, uh, William O'Meara Allen, Michael Larkin and Michael O'Brien were captured. They were convicted and hanged on the 23rd of November 1867. So these three martyrs really become a focal point for, you know, everything from songs to poems to statues and annual, annual commemorations um, both in Manchester and across Ireland. There's a further bombing campaign by Fenians in the 1880s, though Manchester itself, there doesn't seem to be any um, actual um, operations. It's, it's London, Liverpool and Glasgow where those bombing attacks take place. 
As we come into the early 1900s, it's a couple of kind of key uh, moments in that timeline. James Connolly comes over to speak in Manchester and Salford in 1901-1902. The first branch of the Gaelic League is founded in 1904 in Manchester. And then the first Sinn Féin Cumann is founded in 1908. And then, like many other cities across uh, England and Scotland, Irish volunteers uh, organised their first companies in late 1913 in Manchester. The 1916 Rising proved a pivotal moment for the Republican movement in Ireland. I was curious, though, what impact, if any, it had in Manchester. Four Manchester-based Irish volunteers actually fight in the Rising, which is relatively a small number compared to those from from Liverpool and uh, London. I think in the immediate aftermath of the Rising, it really galvanises the Republican movement in, in Manchester. It particularly gives a sense of purpose coming among who begin to do large fundraising um, activity for the dependents of those who have been arrested uh, and those who, who died. And they are also collecting food and they're bringing these and other provisions to the prisoners who at this stage are being held across different prisons in England and Wales. It seems to be only in Glasgow and Liverpool where there's Irish volunteer companies active post-1916. And um, Manchester and other cities um, there seems to be obviously a Republican movement, but it's not until maybe 1919 when you see new IRA companies formed. Now, it was clear that women played a very important role in the Republican movement in Manchester in the aftermath of the Easter Rising. I asked Sam to explain a bit more about their activities in this crucial period leading up to the War of Independence. They're doing fundraising, they're doing political work. I think the main activity of the Irish volunteers in Manchester after the 1916 Rising was arms smuggling and the women played a very important role, particularly in terms of essentially bringing those arms uh, on their person over from Manchester to, to Dublin. So, yeah, women played a, a particularly important role and the main branch of the, well, the first branch um, of Common Amal was called St. Bridget's and that was founded in 1916 in Manchester and that eventually grows to a total of four branches during the War of Independence. But yeah, be, between 1916 and 1919, definitely the main role of the Republican movement uh, in Manchester and other cities was arms smuggling. Sam went on to explain the development of the IRA in the city. Yeah, so the, the first company of uh, the Manchester Battalion of the IRA is founded in, in 1919, and that's known as number one company. And I guess um, as you kind of go through 1919, their main day-to-day or week-to-week activity was drilling and organising work, and again, arms smuggling. The two major events that took place in 19, 1919 from a Manchester point of view is the Lincoln Prison Escape, uh, which occurred in February, and then later to Strangeways Prison Escape in October 1919. I went on to ask Sam more about these escapes, but before we hear his answer, I'm delighted to announce that I have my first live show in Britain coming up in a few weeks. I'm really honoured to have been asked to participate in the Liverpool Irish Festival, and as part of the festival, I'm doing a live show in Grand Central in Liverpool on Sunday, October the 24th at 2 o'clock. Now, this is not Zoom links, I'll be there, so I'm really looking forward to the event and seeing lots of you there. Tickets are now available on the festival website. You'll find links in the show notes below. So hopefully I'll see you on October the 24th at 2pm in Grand Central in Liverpool. Now back to the interview. Next I asked Sam more about the pivotal 
prison escapes in 1919, which the Republican movement in Manchester were centrally involved in. Now, one of these escapes has already been covered in the series. That was Eamon de Valere's escape from Lincoln Jail in 1919. But Sam now explains some of the central characters in the Manchester Republican movement and their involvement in these escapes. Yeah, so in, in terms of the Lincoln prison escape and strange ways, I mean, they were essentially orchestrated by the Manchester IRA with obviously help from GHQ um, in Dublin. And some of the main individuals uh, involved in the IRA in Manchester at that time were Patrick O'Donoghue, who was originally from Kerry. He was a grocer um, by trade and he's based in Manchester by 1908. You know, one thing which I think is kind of interesting is looking at the ages of these people. You know, Patrick O'Donoghue, by the War of Independence, is in his early 30s. You know, he's um, experienced, he's respected. Uh, again, another uh, individual who would be a high-ranking IRA officer at the time was Liam McMahon. He's from Limerick originally. He's based in Manchester by 1909, and he's even older. He's in his early uh, 40s by the time of the War of Independence. And um, Both these men would have been quite close friends with Michael Collins, especially Donoghue, and they would have very close links with GHQ. Um, another individual which I think would be worth mentioning is Seamus Barrett, um, who was originally from Dublin, and he's active in politics in Manchester as far back as the, as the early 1880s. So again, a, quite an interesting individual in terms of the continuation of Irish politics from 1880s right up to 1916 into the War of Independence and beyond. So definitely a, a huge degree of experience uh, amongst the, the leading men of the Manchester IRA. Um, but like you know, most other companies in England and Ireland, the the main bulk of the membership would be would be younger men in their in their earlier twenties mainly. One of the most important functions of the IRA in Britain was the procurement of weapons. Sam now explains where they got these weapons and how they were shipped to Ireland. So certainly from post nineteen sixteen up to the War of Independence, there was arms smuggling, but it was reasonably on a small scale. The IRA were making contact with ex-British um, Army soldiers, mainly of Irish descent, who were coming back from places like France, who had their arms with them or either had access to arms. They were also getting in contact with serving British Army soldiers who were based in different barracks in Manchester. And they were also, you know, contacting pawn shops who might have had some arms for sale and commercial travellers. But it's really once the War of Independence starts in the start of 1919 that the arms smuggling really expands and develops to a larger scale. That's when the IRA actually start taking part in raids on uh, various places where they think arms might be held. British Army huts, golf clubs is mentioned in the pension applications as, as, some, as a places where arms are kept um, and also different scouting halls. The IRA also makes contacts in the railway amongst Irish workers there. And uh, one particular pension uh, applicant mentions that uh, an Irish railway worker was able to steal arms that were en route to India. Uh, it's interesting in London that um, many IRA members looking back talk about the different criminal gangs which were active in London at the time and the contact the IRA made with them, were making with them. Uh, Dennis Carr mentions that he was in contact with the Titanic mob who are based around uh, Nile Street in Hoxton in London and an Italian gang uh, led by Darby Sabini who are um, active in Clerkenwell. There's also talk of Russians and Arabs having guns. Um, in comparison, there's no mention really of that in, in, in Manchester. As I said, it seems to be really raids on uh, British Army huts and uh, contacts with railway employees, which are the main source of arms in Manchester. 
most of the arms that were being collected in, in, in uh, Manchester, London, were then being transported to Liverpool. And that was really the main point where arms were then being smuggled by mainly Irish sailors and dock workers over to over to Dublin. So yeah, arms would have been gathered across England and then funneled towards Liverpool. And from there, they were being smuggled on various boats that were travelling from London to different parts of Ireland. I asked Sam how big these shipments of weapons were. We often think of gun running involving tens of thousands of guns. But as he now explains, it wasn't on the scale at all. No, I mean, it is small scale. I think the other thing that, you know, should, should be mentioned is that a lot of the times these leads were dead ends. You know, people would be given money to, say, shady, crooked arms dealers and then nothing would be coming back. So I think so much time was spent chasing up contacts and deals. I mean, the amount of time wasted was considerable. But yeah, the quantities were quite small. Um, you know, we're talking about a dozen rifles or a dozen handguns, you know, maybe in a purchase or, you know, a couple of thousand rounds of ammunition. Uh, certainly in London, uh, I think they're able to get larger quantities because they have better contacts with soldiers based based in different barracks around around London. I think it seems to be in Manchester, it's kind of more, slightly more small scale. Um, I think the contacts, certainly in London, places like Woolwich Arsenal are, are, are better in terms of where, you know, arms are being held and manufactured. Same in Birmingham. And they seem to have reasonably good contacts where the manufacture of arms is being taken place. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Up to this point, we've discussed what might be described as support work for the IRA in Ireland. I asked Sam about the armed campaign which the IRA in Britain undertook in that country. Yeah, they certainly did. And it didn't last that long, really, when you look back. Obviously, the War of Independence starts in January 1919, but it's not until November 1920 when IRA units um, start launching attacks across England, um, particularly Liverpool, particularly uh, Manchester and London. As I mentioned earlier, Birmingham had an active IRA uh, company, um, but they were basically told that because it was such an important city for arms manufacturing, that there's little point in trying to draw attention to yourselves with actual operations. So the Birmingham IRA were told just focus on smuggling. IRA units in Scotland and Wales were also told by GHQ not to launch uh, armed operations there. 
it was essentially England where those armed operations were taking place. And as I said, it was Liverpool, Manchester and London. The most audacious plans were developed in August 1920, as Sam now explains. In August and September 1920, there's proposals made by GHQ in Dublin to launch some quite audacious attacks in Britain. There were plans to uh, launch sabotage operations on the Stewart Street Electrical Power Station and Clayton Vale Waterworks, as well as Liverpool Docks. Now, the documents which kind of laid out these plans were captured in Dublin when a safe house where Richard Mackay was staying was raided. So the British government and the authorities had got wind of these planned attacks before they could ever be carried out. However, in November 1920, the IRA still go ahead with a certain um, operations, um, specifically in, in, on the Liverpool docks, where there's a wide coordinated attack, uh, an arson attack on, on the Liverpool docks. So it does go ahead to some degree, but not to the, I guess, quite large scale plans that had originally been, um, been organised by the IRA. Now, in two episodes' time, we will look at the events on the Liverpool docks in more detail, which, along with other operations, had far-reaching implications. However, as our conversation about the IRA campaign in Britain continued, we returned to the city of Manchester. In the spring of 1921, the IRA in the city launched a major operation, as Sam now explains. So in Manchester, there were small-scale attacks on farms and factories uh, in the end of 1920 and early 1921. But the most important date, certainly in the later stage of the War of Independence in Manchester, is the 2nd of April 1921. This is when there's coordinated arson attacks across the city on cafes, hotels and factories. One police officer is shot and wounded. And in a response later that evening, the authorities raid at one of the Irish halls, and this is one that was on Erskine Street and Hume. There's a shootout with the armed police uh, at this Irish hall where a large number of Irish Republicans were gathered. One IRA volunteer by the name of Sean Morgan is shot and killed. A second IRA member, Sean Wickham, is seriously wounded. And three police officers are slightly injured. Uh, during this raid, and um, the police find out a, quite a large cache of arms, ammunition, and explosives that were stored in this Irish hall, and 16 men were arrested. There were further raids the following month, in which more arms were captured from the IRA. And then in July 1921, those 16 men uh, are brought to trial, and they're sentenced to a total of 121 years in total. Given how active they were, I asked Sam if he could give me a sense of the size and scale of the Republican movement in Manchester. We know that there was at least four Irish halls uh, across Manchester, at least three of whom were directly uh, ran by the Gaelic lead, possibly four. This is where Cayleys would be held, meetings, Irish language classes, and certainly for a couple of them, there were also arms dumps for the IRA and places where IRA members would drill. So, you know, four halls is you know, it's quite substantial for a relatively small city like Manchester. In terms of Camunamon, as I mentioned, at its height, that four branches um, across Manchester. By the Irish Self-Determination League, its Manchester branches had roughly 4,000 members, as Jared Noonan has described in his book, uh, Ireland, the Republican Movement in England. In terms of the IRA itself, there was two uh, Manchester-based companies and one uh, company based in Rochdale. They comprised the Manchester Battalion. From the pensions, applications and the membership uh, roles, as well as the applications for service medals, reckon there were about 100 active members of the IRA in Manchester at its height, which might not seem like a lot, but you know the 
applicants stress in many ways that, you know, not everybody who walked off the street could, you know, join the IRA. There was certainly a process where individuals would have to vouch for others. That would certainly help their their process. And if you were from the same town or village as somebody and you could vouch for them. But also there was a vetting process. And in, mo- in, in many cases, what the IRA would try to do certainly would, they would get the name of, say, John Smith from Tadavna in Monaghan. They would contact GHQ in Dublin saying, you know, John Smith has applied for membership. And then GHQ would then go to the local IRA officers in Monaghan or to Davna for this example, and try to confirm the credentials of this particular person. So yeah, the IRA might seem to have been small in Manchester with only 100 people, but first of all, these were 100 people who would have taken place in active operations. You know, there might have been another layer of people who would have been doing support work. And as I said, secondly, um, they were not letting in anybody. So they were trying to keep the organisation small in terms of people who they trusted and people who were also uh, willing to take part in the operations that the IRA were were going to be involved in at the time. Given everything we had talked about, I was curious how the IRA in Britain fitted into the structure of the broader organisation, which was directed from the general headquarters based in Dublin. The higher IRA officers, you know, particularly on a battalion level, whether it's Liverpool Battalion or, or Manchester or London, would have had, you know, quite good and regular contact with GHQ. You know, before the armed campaign in England begins, there are some parameters set out. As I've mentioned earlier, you know, operations were only going to take place in England, not Scotland or Wales. There seems to be also an order that large employers of Irish workers are not targeted. So essentially that if a large group of Irish emigrants were working in a particular factory, those factories should not be targeted because as a result of that, that could lead to a large number of Irish people being unemployed. Now, certainly factories and mills were attacked in Manchester and other cities, you know, in late 1920 to 1921. So not too sure um, whether those uh, orders were directly maintained. So I'm not sure um, with those uh, orders adhere to later on, but certainly at the initial start of the campaign, there were some parameters um, laid out. You know, Rory O'Connor was OC England. Certainly he was coming over to England as much as, as he could to visit the IRA units and inspect plans. But I think on a day-to-day, week-to-week level, there was some autonomy given to the units in, in Manchester and other cities, you know, in terms of picking the exact targets, picking which men were going to go on operations, you know, they were they would have to do that uh, on their own and on their own initiative. As our discussion turned to some of the unique problems faced by the Republican movement in Britain, Sam talked about something which I found strange and surprising. Even though they were involved in activity that could land them in prison, what were often petty and trivial rivalries from Ireland divided the IRA in London in particular. Certainly this seems to be a problem in London where within the IRA because you're different men from different counties, perhaps naturally they would be socialising with each other. But probably more than that, there was some rivalry. And it's Reggie Dunn, who uh, was a high-ranking uh, London IRA officer who was later executed for his role in the assassination of Sir Henry Wilson. He writes during the truce period that um, the men from each county hang around like Freemasons. Cork men think they're men of their city and county have won the war. And he'd go on to say, well, the Kerry men would think that their guys are the best and so on. So, yeah, in, certainly in London, there's not examples of this in Manchester, but certainly in London, there is rivalry between the different county guys. And more than that, though, there seems to be another kind of division between the English-born IRA members and the Irish-born IRA members who would come over for work. 
So you kind of have two degrees of, I guess, rivalry. So the court guys would be hanging around with the court guys, the Kerry guys with the Kerry guys, but then they may also look with some suspicion or some distrust or maybe wouldn't look quite as fondly over the guys with the English accents like Reggie Dunn and others who, you know, just by the fact that their parents moved over to Ireland previous in previous years, happened to be born there and happened to be having an English accent. While we've discussed a lot of their activities, I was eager to ask Sam what the aim and strategy of the IRA was in Britain. The buildings and installations they targeted affected the people they worked with and the communities they lived in. Were they trying to punish the British population or alternatively force the hand of British politicians? Now, Sam's answer here was fascinating. I think that's a really good question. I think, you know, it's hard to quantify, but, I, you know, from you know, my point of view, I'd argue that those who moved over to England in the year or two years before the War of Independence, because they had left links with those cities like Manchester, I'm guessing they're probably more up for the armed campaign in many ways. They probably didn't have as many issues with the idea of going out and uh, launching arson attacks on factories and uh, mills. And in some, in two instances, it was football grounds. You know, having said that, no, I, I don't know if there's any evidence that the Manchester-born IRA men, for this example, were more, more hesitant. But I can only imagine that if you had gone to school or worked in Manchester for many years, you, you, may, be, you may be more hesitant to a certain degree or certainly would be more worried about the public reaction of your friends and, and your neighbours and your, and your work colleagues. Because you've more to lose, I guess, essentially. Um, you know, I think that's a very important point to always reiterate when we're talking about the IRA in England is that they couldn't rely on the support, passive or direct support of their colleagues or their or their workmates or their neighbours. You know, they are really isolated, both on a scale, a wide scale of the English population not being supportive of their campaign, but also a layer of the Irish population not being supportive of their campaign either. I think in terms of the logic or the reasoning for the IRA campaign was probably twofold. It was, first of all, it was publicity, you know, first and foremost. They wanted to draw attention to what was going on in Ireland. And, you know, one of the best ways of doing that was to, you know, have something spectacular like an attack on a farm or attack on a, a building and directly say that we were doing this because of what was going on in Ireland. You know, if you were reading a newspaper in Manchester, you, you couldn't avoid that if you were, you know, an English-born person. If, if, if there's activity in your own city, that's going to draw attention to the Irish cause, perhaps more than something that was going on in Ireland. You know, as well as just general publicity seeking, I think there was a genuine sense from IRA members very personally that they wanted to revenge the atrocities and the attacks that were being carried out by you know the black and tans and others in Ireland especially after events like the sacking of Belbriggan in September 1920 I think there was a sense of we want to do to England what is being done back home in Ireland. This led us on to the reaction of the wider British public at the time. Sam detailed the experience of one woman involved in the movement which was very revealing. It comes across now and again in the pension applications and other sources. Uh, one particular woman called Peg Buckley, she's originally from McCroom and Cork. Uh, she moves over to Manchester for employment. She's active in Cumann from 1918 onwards. And during the War of Independence, um, she plays an important role in transporting arms. And when she's writing in to the pensions board to support her application, you know, you're talking 20, 30 years after the events, you can see the, you know, what had happened back then certainly resonated with her many years later. And this is a quote from her pension application. 
I took parcels of arms and ammunition from fellows off the American boats. My home at 9 Lady Barn Avenue was used as a storing place. I had to distribute the same to other houses on several occasions. Taking the risk of carrying large suitcases along crowded thoroughfares and on streetcars, my house was raided on one occasion by four detectives. Some small guns hidden there were not discovered. My neighbours became very hostile to us after this event. I, th- I think the two things that jump out there was just the absolute, absolute stress that would be on someone's uh, conscious and on someone's, you know, activity of having to carry large suitcases of arms through crowded streets and on public transport. I mean, you can imagine this person sweating uh, going through that with fear of being caught. But then she ends that quote by just talking about how a raid that occurred on her home that led to her neighbours, presumably English neighbours, become very hostile to us. So again, that's an impact on her on her life um, from being involved coming them on. There was incidents, however, where some British workers were sympathetic to the Irish cause. Yeah, there's there's some cases. Um, one of the most interesting uh, involves trade unionists and workers in Manchester, and this comes through the pension application of Gilbert Lynch, who was a, a very well known trade unionist in Manchester, as someone who had fought in the 1916 rising. It's through his contacts with left-wing trade unionists, and particularly in a factory um, of the Crossley Motor Company, who were manufacturing and also repairing Crossley tenders for use by the British forces in Ireland. He says in his pension application that he was able to get some of them to sabotage these tenders that were being repaired. And as a result, that would certainly held up work. And he's, I think, certainly suggesting reading between the lines that these were not necessarily Irish factory workers, but those who had some sympathy to the Irish cause because they were socialists and trade unionists. Now, to conclude the interview, I asked Sam to give me an overview of the IRA campaign in Britain towards the end of the conflict. I mean, from a Manchester IRA perspective, as I said, there was the raids in April and May 21, which leads to a large number being arrested. Many of those who don't get caught then simply flee the city. Um, So some go to different parts of England, some travel back to Ireland. Those 60 men who had been arrested, their sentence in July 21. Luckily for them, they come out during the truce in February 1922. I think the truce is an interesting time because it comes true in London that there was a lot of these IRA guys who had lost their jobs, who uh, lost a sense of purpose directly. And essentially, they were looking for uh, more funds from DHQ to help support them. There was kind of guys who, like in Ireland, just had, you know, maybe less to live for now that the truce had been called. Some of them were drinking too much. Some of them were getting into fights. Even though the truce had been declared, the arms smuggling was still going on um, because there was obviously a possibility that the war would be resumed. And in London, the GHQ chemical department continued their plans to manufacture explosives. And it's actually during the truce period, which, you know, many people will see as the quiet time, and it was in many ways, in which that's the only fatality of the London IRA is actually in the truce period when one of its members is killed accidentally when manufacturing explosives. And the plans that the London IRA uh, had for those explosives, is, it's quite staggering. William Ahern, an IRA officer, has written in his application that the explosives were going to be used for the blowing up of powerhouses, sewers, underground cable junctions, underground railways. And the way they were going to utilise these explosives was quite interesting as well. He said that he had been given instructions to buy six old lorries which were then going to be lined with steel and concrete and filled with explosives. So in many ways, these were kind of early car bombs. 
And it's quite interesting to hear that the IRA in London particularly had these quite audacious and, and quite big plans to launch a bombing campaign if the truce and negotiations fell through and if war was going to be resumed. I want to thank Sam not only for his time in this interview, but also his ongoing work in the series. Next week is that exclusive Q&A with Dr. Brian Hanley, only available on Patreon and Acast+. You can sign up at the links in the show notes below. I hope you can join me and Brian for that. Until then, Sloan. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.